Hey, I'm glad you're here. Jai and I recorded this episode about a month ago, just before his 33rd birthday. In this episode, I asked Jai what his matrix moment was. And when I ask people that, what I'm really asking them is, when did you start to question what you were conditioned to believe? What about you? Have you had a matrix moment? Jai tells the story of high school and a teacher that believed in him that made all the difference. And I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you for being here. Hello, and welcome to The Deepening Place. Hey, Jai, how are you? I'm doing pretty good today. It's the day before my birthday. Oh, hey, this is kind of a, you know, I like numbers, right? So is this 3.30 and you're going to be 33, right? 3.30, 33. And I was also <sighs> born on a Monday, just like tomorrow is. Oh, I love that. Okay. I like that. 3.33. Yeah. 3.30.33. Well, happy birthday, Jai. Thank you. Appreciate it. How have you been? Uh. I'm kind of, I'm getting tired of being cooped up with all these people. So what's it like with the three teens in the house or three kids as I say? Yeah, it's, um, it's challenging just because we're not used to this much togetherness, just not used to having so little structure. I usually go to work and they usually go to school and everybody's together. You know, everybody I'm encountering admits to kind of this low grade undercurrent of anxiety because we just don't really know where this is all going to end. And probably the kids are no different. They're wondering, you know, how it's going to affect them. And I just noticed that we're a little shorter with each other. Hmm. And is that sort of like just in your family, you're saying, or, you know, with clients and friends? Oh, I mean, I, I'm speaking for myself. I know that I feel just kind of low grade anxious and talking about it with clients for, you know, sometimes hours a day. That's challenging, honestly. I'm hoping that, you know, the newness of it will wear off and we can get back to normal problems. But I'm not, I'm not really hopeful for that because this is kind of all consuming. It, it changes everything for everybody. Yes, it does. I feel really bad for people that, like me, I can get away from my kids. They're older. They go to their room. When it comes to online virtual school, they go online and figure it out. And I really don't have that much to do with it. I just really feel for all the people who are having to do so much more than they were doing before and the stress. And I'm just wondering how that's affecting families and, and kids. And hopefully people are doing fairly well with it. Are you hearing anything? Not as of yet, but this week, um, I'm going to spend some time intentionally hearing how people are dealing with it, particularly families, particularly families with kids that are beneath like 10 years old or so and have multiple beneath 10. My neighbors do, but they're fortunate to have a lot of space where the kids can like run around and kind of find some stuff to do. But I used to work for foundation communities and they, you know, house migrant families or families that are desperately in need in town. Some of those families would have, oh man, there was one family from, I'm not sure where in Africa, but he had 
his dad had seven kids and the kids were between like four years old and 11 years old and they live in an apartment. Wow. And, and a lot of the families there weren't seven kids, but most of them were, you know, about two to three kids living in an apartment complex. And I, I was one of the like teachers for the after school program at the apartment complex they live. There's whole zones like that across America. I can't imagine how those people are functioning right now. They heavily relied on services that, you know, took the kids for a few hours after school, even if it was just a couple of the kids, you know, for them to have yeah. some space or something like that. It just seems like the the incidence level of maybe abuse or could mm. could potentially be greater because, you know, you're just in a small space. And like you said, your neighbor, at least they have a yard. I'm not saying it's easy for them, but, you know, some people live in, in cities and apartments and they're not supposed to go out. And that's just got to get old. I can hear you speaking about the anxiety part. I'm an educator. I, I, I am figuring that schools won't even, you know, physically reopen until at least August. That's a long, long time. Yeah, that is a long time. It's like four months. What is that? Four months? Yeah, four months from now. Yeah. Truthfully, I am thoroughly more confused as to how to confuse and now not fear is in the media, but anxiety was in the media. The stations are broadcasting a whole lot of information that just leads to more anxiety. One thing that if um, you're afraid, you're being manipulated. I think an antidote to that is to have conversations with people that you respect and trust. And if we can just invite people and not so much have to prove it or solve it or make the decision, but I think if we could contribute a little bit to helping people understand how to think freely. I agree with you. If that's kind of our our mission or something we want to focus on, maybe you can tell, I don't even know if I know this story completely, but like, how did that happen for you? We've talked about the matrix moment before, and I know that's a cultural reference that a lot of people can relate to, but in that movie, everyone was asleep and just kind of working. And the the main character had an awakening and he started to see clearly and see things differently. So when People say, what was your matrix moment? It's like, when did you wake up and start to see things differently? My matrix moment, uh, I want to say it was freshman year of high school. And specifically, it was in religion class. So I don't know what it probably was freshman year. But what was happening was that I had been an altar boy in the Catholic church for years before that, from like first grade to eighth grade. Let's just say something like that. Seven, eight, nine years, something like that. And then my Catholic high school, we had to read the Bible or you're supposed to read the Bible. But at that time, I was still a very obedient student. And so I did. I would go to class and like read the Bible. And then sometimes in breaks or at home or when I was still ultra boring and had time, I'd go read the Bible. And my matrix moment happened because I was being taught things and, and I was asking questions and they weren't lining up. Not at all. And then it got to a point where my teachers were just covering themselves or whatever they were covering for, or maybe they truly didn't have the answers, but there were answers I just didn't have. And a lot of it centered around, like, there's a book about Hebrews that's written in Latin. Can you answer me that one? Or like, are you talking about the book of Hebrews in the Bible or a book about Hebrews? Yeah, the Bible itself. Like I had known, oh, okay. you know, they taught us the Dead Sea Scrolls were written in 
old Hebrew and all these things. And so that was just a, that's an example of a question. But the question that really got me was like, whatever well, a few, but it all centered around we're not supposed to judge others, but it sounds like unless someone's in the Catholic school, you know, sort of doing the same thing I'm doing, it sounds like we're we're condemning them. I was like, this doesn't really add up, you know, this this doesn't home life was different from what I was being taught as academically important. So just to say all that, like my matrix moment was real life, both in like a, a spiritual sense in terms of like condemning people by learning Catholicism specifically. And then um, in terms of like the tools and sort of life goals I had weren't lining up with like focusing on getting an A in English compared to being like emotionally well at home and sort of making money like I needed to. Um, so that was my matrix yeah. moment. I was about 13 years old. So you're 13 years old and you're, you have all these questions that you're just getting kind of pat answers to and your reality at school is kind of different than the reality that you're facing at home. Yeah, that's a good way to Did, sum it up. Was that enhanced by like people at school being clueless about your reality at home, telling you one thing at school, but not really having any idea what you were going through? Mm. Not so much in high school. It had been that way later in middle school, like right before high school. High school was sort of the tipping point. Yeah. High school was a tipping point just because it wasn't like as as connected. It was sort of a big high school from New Orleans. My band director was the only person that kind of had any insight into what life was like at home. And because he understood it. Yeah, that was sorry. Because he understood it. He um he had never lived through a situation like that, but he knew what it would take for me to sort of stay on track to to deal with everything mm-hmm. between the two worlds. He's an extremely strict, stern man, extremely strict and stern, but like somehow still like caring. Do you think that was good for you at the time? It is exactly what mm-hmm. I needed. Mr. Hurley was an angel yeah. in that sense. Absolutely. Like, absolutely. Provided me a lot of opportunity, but also a lot of a lot of expectation, but expectations I can handle, you know, Yeah. a lot of pressure, a lot of expectation, but stuff I can handle. And he community was only a teacher that would regularly communicate with both of my parents, nor darn good. Well, what was happening, you know, in our community, in that home. It almost kind of brings us back to what we were talking about at first. Like this experience for people is different, you know, like, I mean, I know it's hard for celebrities in their mansion. It's not easy for them either, but it's not the same as it is for somebody who's living in the middle of the projects in New York city with three or four kids and a tiny apartment. It's just not the same. And that's almost like you were kind of straddling two worlds and the one world of school wasn't really aware of your, your home life. Yes. I'd say it was not exactly like that. We were fortunate enough to still not be the, you know, the sort of poorest people are the most, strung out or whatever in the neighborhood but um it was borderline almost as polar opposite yeah. you know i went to a extremely white high school there were black tables at the school all black kids sat at one of two tables in the one of one there were two black tables in like out of 40 tables or so wow. and like if a white kid sat down at the table you know an assistant principal would move them really relocate them uh-huh whereas but the neighborhood I, the neighborhood we lived in was 99% black. I'm going to say there was a white person somewhere because it probably was <laughs> or something that wasn't black, but I'm just going with odds here. There's got to be someone else, but it was completely black, like completely black. And it wasn't just like the white kids at school were 
it was middle class enough for sure. There were no low sort of working class white people at that school. If there were, I mean, a very low, a very low percentage. Speaking as an adult now, looking back, two totally different. So the worlds. black kids at the black tables were from more of an impoverished neighborhood. There's only one middle school that my high school granted scholarships mm -hmm. from, and that school was called Bishop Perry, and it was an all-black um, middle school. I did not go to Bishop Perry, but most of the black kids that went to Brother Martin um, were from Bishop Perry Middle School, an all-black, thoroughly low-income private Catholic school. So you're going to a parochial school, a Catholic school, and yep. a high school, and they're telling you this stuff about love and Hebrews and Jesus. And yet they're making you guys sit at separate tables and they don't really know what's going on in your home life. Sitting at separate tables, all the lunch ladies are black, all the teachers are white, all the kids that worked for, um, like had work study were black. I don't know, Taylor Tramontana, if he listens to this, he'll, <laughs> he'll, he'd be very pissed if I didn't call say you that. Out. Taylor's a white kid. Yeah. Uh-huh, so he does all that. So he's at 1%. But um, yeah, a total dichotomy. Um, kids were always like called out for not having lunch money if they didn't have it. A lot of stuff that did not line up with, with the very book we were supposed to be reading. Oh, yeah, I get it. I mean, I can't say I totally get it, but I think I understand what you're saying now. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... That's the story. That's 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 my matrix moment. Living between those two very parallel or perpendicular Americas. Yeah. What made you be different? I mean, what made you ask? What made what kept you from just becoming bitter? Because you're not. What kept me from becoming bitter was having two younger siblings. I have to say that was at the top of the list. They were way more distraught than I was at that point in life. And like, we just couldn't afford that financially. Like they just couldn't afford that. What do you that. mean they couldn't? Um, what do you mean they couldn't afford it? So like our dad already struggled with addiction and stuff. And our, um, we had already lost a grandpa. There just weren't a lot of male figures around that you could really look at. You know, there were there just weren't a lot of male figures in the neighborhood. And I'm also like, you know, their older brother. I'd always been sort of like the person to leave from example. And maybe that's every older kid. But that was a big part of it. I'd have to attribute a lot to Mr. Hurley. I'd have to attribute a lot to my mom and even my dad, like even through his struggles and us being poor, like he still held a full time job. So there, and I and like I said, like we were in a very tough situation, but some people in the neighborhood still had it way worse, way worse. There were two kids named Pumpkin and Weenie. I still don't know their real names. They lived across <laughs> the street from us. Like, I can't imagine where they are nowadays. Like, Pumpkin and Weenie. Um, so I just felt like I had no excuses, you know? Like, I'm at a black table, but I am at a really pretty wealthy school, and I am getting a really good education, you know? So I always kept it in perspective. The situation sucked, but it could have been a whole lot worse. So you chose to focus on the opportunity and also being mindful that your siblings needed you? Yeah, there was a lot of opportunity. I wanted to capitalize and um, I did not want to be another, yeah. like, man, there was a guy the same age as me, like the same exact age as me that was selling my dad dope. I saw that path too. I saw that path too. And it just wasn't the one I was choosing. And I really don't have a great answer as to why I didn't 
go down that. You know, when my, my dad passed in December and my mom and sister came out and said, man, John, we're really happy. You just didn't end up like an addict. Like we were, we were all, they weren't shocked that I didn't, but they were like, we wouldn't have been surprised if you had struggled with that. Yeah. So that was like the, that was a reality or a, a, an expected reality for me to face. So. One thing that I notice in my clients who are survivors, and what I mean by that is they were in a situation where it would have been very easy for them to become a statistic. And there's always, like you said, there's always a moment where it's like something takes over this manager part of them that says, no, that's not the road I'm going down. That's not the route I'm taking. And then it's almost like they set their face like Flint to go toward like a different reality. Do you kind of feel that way? Do you feel like you were determined to? Yeah, it kind of comes full back. Like um, at the time, I think I'd stop referring to it as Jesus or even God, but I felt a connection to something definitely greater than myself. Definitely like a, um, it felt like a moment of purpose. Like there's something to do out of all this. There was something to do. There's something, there's a reason I had to be living that be in that situation at home, but also be the only kid in the neighborhood to go to that school. Like there's other poor kids at that school, but I don't know their home. I don't know their home situation or whatever. So it felt like a bit of purpose in being there and music, music really helped. Did you share your matrix moment? (laughs) No, I did not. Are you ready to? Um, I don't know. I, I feel like it wasn't, I think it was slower. I was like on the, Crockpot make matrix moment plan. <laughs> oh, slow yeah, we put it on low and hmm. I think probably in a similar way, things just didn't always add up, but I came from a completely different background than you. One thing that I was taught to believe was that if I could be a good enough girl, if I could be a good enough Christian that I wouldn't suffer. I really gave it a good college try. I tried to be really, really good. And I think when I realized that that wasn't true, that everybody suffers, that I had to start looking at things in a different way. You know, I had to reconcile my suffering with I wasn't being punished and that that I was okay. And everybody suffers. It's just the price of being alive. Yeah, we can probably maybe get into both of our stories more later. But I think that was it for me is trying to reconcile experiencing life and experiencing hard things or disappointments. And knowing that I was probably as goody two shoes as I could be. You mean Dorothy clicking her heels three times is real? <laughs> that doesn't just stop. That at just all right doesn't. There. Yeah. No, but you know what? That's a perfect thing for you to say. What is real and what is true about that story, I believe, is when good witch Glinda said, you have it already. You, you've always had it. So that's how that story ended. You know, Dorothy was on this search looking for somebody to save her and rescue her. And at the end of the movie, the good witch Glinda said, look, girl. You always had it. You have it. And that's really what, you know, that's sometimes one of the first things that I tell people when I meet them 
as a client is you have everything that you need. Now, let's get to work. Sometimes it's more of an excavation than an acquisition. Oh, I like that. I like that because it's true, but I haven't heard it worded that way. For me to relate it to like right now with the coronavirus, there's definitely a lot of families feeling like sort of helpless. And especially in terms of what do I do with my child and or what do I do to make money right now? Mm -hmm. There's a friend of mine, Mike Yates. He helps build schools and his message is very profound and clear is that families that have love have everything they need to educate their child for the world with the caveat of access to technology. And his point, particularly right now, is that families don't need to fear. They just need to be shown the right way to alleviate some of that fear. And, um, you might be a lot more powerful and, and apt than you thought than you thought before. And I think as a country, if we look at that um you know, if Dorothy represents the populace of America, we do have what we need to make it through this. I think we can be socially disciplined. I believe, and I'm actively doing um, the right thing to help my neighbor out. And I believe if we look at it from from, from that perspective, um, we can start help alleviating that fear. Yeah, I love that you said, I'm doing what I can to help my neighbor. And that's really what it's all about. Who is your neighbor? And everyone identifying that and and doing what they can to help. Anything else for today? Um, no. All right. Well, thank you as always and stay safe. All right. You too. Thanks, Bye. Angela.